This podcast is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. The Walton Family Foundation is, at its core, a family-led foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities. The foundation partners with others to make a difference in K-12 education, the environment, and its home region of northwest Arkansas and the Arkansas-Mississippi Delta. Learn more at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. During the pandemic, foreign and domestic actors have spread disinformation online, making people doubt the severity of COVID-19. Laura Rosenberger directs the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which works to counter authoritarian interference in democracies. She says the COVID disinformation could spell trouble for the November election. When you are sowing doubts about the information that the government is providing about the pandemic, you're sowing doubt in citizens' faith in their democratic institutions. That primes us to have less faith in the integrity of the election. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Security Forum, presented by the Aspen Strategy Group. In 2016, Russia meddled in the presidential campaign. It spread propaganda on social media platforms like Twitter, among other tactics. This year, disinformation was on the minds of voters, candidates, government officials, and technology platforms ahead of the election. And for good reason. Experts were seeing new threats by actors at home and abroad. Then COVID-19 hit, and a new battleground emerged around disinformation. With the pandemic and the election, are we in a perfect storm for chaos online? Laura Rosenberger, who served on the National Security Council at the White House, is joined by Renee DeResta, research manager at the Stanford Internet Observatory. Cecilia Kang leads the conversation. She's a technology reporter at the New York Times. Here's Kang. So I thought I'd start with you, Laura, and ask you, you know, we are less than three months from November 3rd, from Election Day, and Can you tell us at this point, what are your greatest concerns around election security and disinformation? And are are they different concerns than perhaps you might've had around the 2016 campaign? Well, thanks, Celia. Yeah, it's it's so great to be here with you and and with Renee um, to have this important conversation. So the thing I'd like to do in terms of addressing the question about the elections is, is actually take a step back a bit Because I think sometimes when we think about disinformation um, or threats to democracy just in terms of elections, we often miss the bigger picture at play. One of the goals of especially the foreign actors that I spend so much time looking at is is not necessarily just about changing or, or sort of manipulating an election outcome. That might be one part of it for some actors. But A bigger part of it for actors like Moscow, actors like Beijing, um, actors like Tehran, authoritarians who are using the information space for geopolitical purposes, is actually to undermine and weaken democracy itself. It's to make people trust the institutions less. It's to make people have less faith in information. It's to really undermine the sense of truth itself, right? A lot of times what we see in the information manipulation space 
is not necessarily about driving any particular narrative. It's not always about information that's sort of quantifiably true or false. Um, but it's about really undermining that faith in democratic institutions and that sort of sense of democratic governance delivering for people. So to apply that to the election context, the thing that actually worries me most is that so much of that perfect storm that you just laid out, so many of those dynamics are actually aimed at making people have less faith in their government, making people have less faith in democracy as a system, as something that's delivering, having less faith in news media, having less faith in the information they're getting about their health. And, and I worry deeply that coupled with questions about how an election is actually going to be pulled off in a pandemic, all the changes that we're seeing to how the election is going to be run, all the questions that are being raised by, by you know, some actors who are acting, I think, in less than good faith about what mail-in balloting might look like and whether it's vulnerable. I worry a lot, not just about sort of the process leading up to the election, but actually the night after, the day after, that there will be an effort to really sow doubt about the integrity of the process itself and make people question whether they can have trust and faith in it. And so I think understanding the election as part of that bigger perfect storm that you just laid out is exactly what we need to be doing and bearing in mind how the focus really needs to be on shoring up these institutions, shoring up resilience, shoring up people's faith in the information, quality information sources so that we are less vulnerable to these sort of manipulative tactics. Yeah, and Renee, that was certainly some of the findings in your research around the 2016 election and the tactics by the IRA. A lot of it was to undermine sense of truth, trust in institutions, trust in government, trust in society, really. Um, what are you also seeing? Any, first of all, any response to what Laura's saying, but also what are you seeing that may be different this time around? Are you seeing, for example, Russia um, deploy different tactics, maybe expand the way that they have di had distributed sort of their disinformation campaigns. What are your observations today compared to back then when you were studying it so intensely? Sure. So I think one of the things that's important to understand is that you should think of the social media ecosystem not as some, um, you know, it's unique in the sense that this is the kind of new technology of the day, but the idea of influence operations are not new, right? And so if you think about the history of propaganda, the history of influence, it's always carried out on the most technologically salient platform of the time. Whether that was television or radio, there's an incorporation of human agents of influence and in undermining society. Anybody who's watched the Americans has seen, you know, the ways in which Russian actors interfaced with civil, you know, with um, civil activists uh, who were highlighting and calling attention to very real tensions in American society. So a lot of the way that we think about this is actually um, internet as system kind of part of one more channel in a, a broad based tool of communication and influence capabilities. And so when you think about it in that regard, um, what we should expect to see is anytime that system changes, anytime the rules of the system change, the adversary should evolve uh, so that they can overcome that change. And so one example of this would be um, Sort of in the immediate aftermath of us beginning to understand what happened in 2016, uh, Facebook ads became very much a topic of conversation. And in response to the recognition that Russia had in fact run ads to grow audiences for their groups, um, what we started to see was Facebook begin to make changes saying, okay, now we're going to verify your identity. We're going to verify, uh, you know, we're going to send a postcard home to your address so that you have to prove that you are who you say you are. 
Now, this is not an insurmountable, you know, check for a sophisticated state actor, uh, but it does kind of add a little bit more friction into that system. And so when we see the formation of investigations teams, the formation of public-private partnerships, like, you know, at Stanford, we do work with the platform companies on identifying uh, emerging influence campaigns. Um, what you see is the evolution of the actor tactics. So as a lot of the focus became um, these operations in the context of uh, inauthentic behavior is the term the platforms use. One of the things that my team saw was the rise of groups in Africa, Russian activities in Africa, targeting African local politics in eight different countries uh, in which they hired locals. So instead of fake identities run by trolls out of St. Petersburg, what you started to see instead was one or two real people who were incorporated into the operation. Again, we don't know to what extent they were winning or not winning, but that franchising down into local actors makes it harder for the platform to decide to take down the entirety of the page because there is some grain of uh, authenticity there. Mm -hmm. In fact, these pages came down, Evgeny Prigozhin uh, in his FAN, you know, <laughs> his extraordinary, uh, you know, wrote this extraordinary article <laughs> about how, um, you know, the censors at Stanford were silencing the voices of real Africans. Right. And so this is the uh, this is the reaction that you get when these pages come down. Facebook is, of course, you know, preventing these very real people from exercising their right to, to speak on the platform. Uh, and that's a very hard narrative to counter, uh, short of saying, like, here meticulously laid out is our assessment of the operation and, and how we attributed it the way we did and the kind of uh, extensive research that went into that to justify the takedown. But what matters is for some percentage of people who believe that media ecosystem, it is still ultimately a, uh, you know, an egregious overreach of, of censorship. That's, um, you know, we will get to this more about, you know, the struggle that, um, or the challenge that, that poses for the, the platforms themselves. And when you, when you're sort of testing their rules and their, and their guidelines with these real individuals that are being used um, as part of this platform. So we will, we will get to that as well, but that is um, that is a great example of of the, the new tactics. And Laura, can you talk a little bit about then and around February and March, the pandemic really the the novel coronavirus became a real thing um, globally. Um, the pandemic was um, realized as a, a huge phenomena. What then did you start observing in terms of disinformation, particularly by foreign actors? as well as domestic, around disinformation with the virus. Yeah, absolutely, Cecilia. Um, and I think I'll probably leave most of the domestic piece to Renee because she's yeah. got um, she's got deeper research, uh, especially on the sort of coronavirus um, disinformation there on the on the domestic side. On the foreign actor side, um, I'd actually like I'll I'll highlight mostly what we saw. The most interesting story, I think, for me, um, especially in February, March was really um, coming out of, of Beijing, um, out of the People's Republic of China. And, and just, I'm gonna pause for one second on a definitional point, which is probably gonna sound a little bit pedantic, but bear with me, um, because I'm not gonna talk about this um, in terms of disinformation per se. Um, I'm gonna talk about information manipulation um, because disinformation is classically defined as deliberately false or misleading information. Right, deliberately disseminated false or misleading information. 
the vast majority of what we see in the broader sort of information ecosystem um, in terms of malicious behavior is not necessarily something that falls into that space. Um, there's a whole range of tactics that we could talk about. Disinformation is absolutely one of them, but I use the term information manipulation to talk sort of broadly speaking about some of these um, tactics that we see that disinformation is, is one piece of. I think that's particularly important in the China context because um, the, the Chinese party state's tactics have historically been different than what we have seen from an actor like Moscow. And I think that comes a bit from their geopolitical positions, right? Um, Putin's Russia is, a, is an objectively declining power that is um, you know, becoming weaker and weaker on a whole host of, of geopolitical and geoeconomic measures. Beijing is an objectively rising power, right? Um, is seeking to exert its influence more broadly. And so while um, Putin's interests are a much sort of uh, shorter term and much less sort of reputationally, um, you know, involve uh, much less reputational risk. For Beijing, if you're trying to cultivate yourself as a partner and a, and a leader and a sort of geopolitical um, player um, in a significant way, um, it's a different risk calculus. Um, so what that had meant was that historically, we'd seen most of the Chinese party state's information manipulation strategies um, focused on amplifying, creating and amplifying content that was positive about the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and suppressing or denying the information space to actors, topics, and entities that it didn't want to occupy them. Um, it, did, it does that, you know, through, of course, mass censorship, but also other forms of algorithmic suppression and, and other kinds of measures. This is very much a part of their strategy internally, right, in terms of what we, what we hear about it with the, with the Great Firewall of, of China, which has both technical and legal components to it. But we've increasingly seen China as its um, external um, strategy has become more assertive and it's gained interest more broadly, um, expanding its information strategy um, outside, of, outside of its borders. And what we really saw around February, March of this year with COVID was an acceleration of some trends that we had started to see over the past year, which was um, both Chinese officials with their foreign ministry, other parts of their official bureaucracy, as well as um, party and state-backed media becoming much more aggressive in their use of information, um, taking on some tactics that actually look a little bit more Russian. Now, I think it's important to be clear that there are still significant differences in the way these two actors engage in the information space. But um, one of, you know, some of the things that we saw that seemed like a departure from past practice um, from Chinese actors, um, these were all really aimed around um, you know, I think what I would characterize is acting out of insecurity, right? The party actually early on in its response to the coronavirus um, crisis was really seeking to deflect blame from itself for its own initial failings in dealing with the virus. Um, you know, the, the uh, Chinese government was being blamed by the U.S. and others for allowing it to get out of control. And so deflecting blame was a really big piece of it. And so we saw a few different pieces, um, I think, come into play that, that appear to be new um, elements of the, of the Chinese party state's information manipulation strategy. The first is um, very aggressive engagement um, on Western social media platforms, particularly Twitter, uh, by Chinese officials. Um, this, what, what the Chinese themselves have dubbed wolf warrior diplomacy. Um, uh, much more sort of aggressive trolling-like tactics um, that we've seen um, evolve over the past, um, past few months. The second piece of it is um, the spreading of, of actual disinformation, in particular about the origin of the virus. 
Um, and, and in part, we actually saw a few different narratives about what the origin of the virus might have been. Um, and we saw coordinate the campaign to promote those different narratives um, using material from conspiracy theory websites that form a sort of central part of actually the pro-Kremlin um, disinformation ecosystem. And so that also felt like a, a difference and something that actually had some similarities to activities we've seen from Moscow when it sought to deflect blame from itself about the poisoning of Sergei Skripal in Salisbury or the downing of the MH17 airliner over eastern Ukraine. So for me, one of the big questions um, is whether this is a sort of permanent departure and a new phase of tactics. Um, or whether this is, is a sort of aberration of testing and trying out new things. Um, but those are just a few of the, of the dynamics that we've seen um, over the past few months, in particular with how China's engaged around the coronavirus information. It's fascinating that you mentioned, Laura, that they're taking some cues from the, the Russian playbook. At the same time, Renee, you've done, you just published a really fascinating report on sort of the, the ecosystem of, of China's kind of information apparatus and how it goes back so far in history. And they have sort of an established playbook that's online and offline. And can you talk about what your observations are combining what Laura just um, sort of um, feeding off of what Laura was just saying? You know where I was going, Renee. I was going towards your research paper that was just published last week, where you talk about, you give a really fascinating look at the ecosystem of information sort of tactics by the, the Chinese government dovetailing on what Laura was saying on the new tactics that they're deploying that look very similar to what Russia was doing over the last few years, would love to talk, hear from you what you found in your study. And also, can you, can you give us a sense of how threatening the Chinese information sort of apparatus is when it comes to, and I'm glad you, Renee, sort of distinguished the, the vocabulary, information manipulation, as well as dis disinformation. Sure. So the work that we did, um, we have a project at Stanford right now called the Virality Project, which is sort of a double entendre because we're looking at coronavirus. Um, but we chose coronavirus in part because it allowed us to have a, um, this is one of the few moments in history, I think, where the entire world has been talking about the same thing, right? That doesn't happen very often. Um, and when the governments, particularly authoritarian governments, have to kind of justify their existence in the, and their continued existence in the form, you know, when massive numbers of, of people are dying. And so we've looked at Russia, China, Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, the US, um, so not limited to authoritarians. Uh, I think Venezuela is kind of next up on deck. Um, so we have a pretty broad, uh, you know, assessment of how states have been using both media and social media and then overt and covert tactics. And that's been the framework that we've tried to use at SIO more broadly um, for maybe the last, uh, just about almost a year now, where we've tried to, again, understand social media as yet one more channel in an influence operation or an information operation writ large. So the work that we did on China was uh, with our colleagues at Hoover, uh, first contextualizing China's capabilities, uh, looking back to the sort of origin of the CCP. And, Again, understanding that propaganda has always been uh, an integral part at the highest levels of government. There's no, there's, there's no attempt to conceal that. It's sort of a public diplomacy, uh, you know, the, the attempt to use 
established broadcast ecosystem, some of it is inward facing. We've chosen to focus primarily on the outward facing content, the content targeting the rest of the world. Um, so we looked at ways in which that apparatus was deployed towards coronavirus. Uh, we've looked at the Wolf Warrior diplomacy because as Laura mentioned, it does manifest on Twitter, right? Because that is where you reach the majority of the world instantaneously today. And uh, accounts that happen to be funny or irreverent or sarcastic, you know, their content is frequently retweeted, which affords it even more reach. So there's just a slightly different dynamic there. Um, that's the kind of social media as marketing, you know, marketing for an idea, propaganda being, uh, an, you know, a, um, almost a marketing campaign for a particular idea. We, we can say that they're using the same tactics in a lot of ways at this point. Um, where we see the covert side come in is the incorporation of things like bots. Um, there's a spectrum of, uh, there, and, and this has again gone back through history, a spectrum of understanding how concealed uh, an account or operator is. Uh, sometimes they are still real people who are agents of influence in the sense that you don't know who they're working for, who's funding them. Uh, but oftentimes what we see with Twitter and with Facebook is there's this extremely easy way to create completely fake people. So that dynamic just kind of, again, transforms, makes it potentially more efficient to run completely unattributed campaigns. Um, but they do, in fact, take some work. And what we saw with Russia was a multi-year commitment to begin to establish its personas. The personas that they were using in 2016 were created back in 2014, right? So they had a multi-year history of engagement. Uh, they worked to connect with influencers. They worked to ensure that they were retweeted by extremely prominent people who had phenomenal reach with their target audience, right? And that's on the left and on the right. We had Jack Dorsey retreat, you know, retweeting some of Russia's um, fake black activist trolls, and we had Donald Trump Jr. retweeting some of their fake right-wing activist trolls, right? So uh, they really put in the work to understand what would resonate with American audiences, what kind of personas would play. We haven't seen that sophistication from China. Um, we have seen sloppiness. <laughs> We've seen the creation of extremely thin personas. Uh, one of the things, if you, if you visit um, io.stanford.edu, one, one of our data research assistants made a beautiful graph showing the a turning on of accounts over time topically. And so you see a, you know, a bloom when coronavirus hits because all of a sudden they have a bunch of coronavirus-focused personas that were all created relatively you know, within a span of the, you know, couple weeks to month, right? Um, so they're not laying the groundwork and doing this very sophisticated type of persona creation that's useful for persuasion. And what we see instead is this kind of um, creation that actually mimics very closely Saudi Arabia's work around like when uh, Khashoggi was murdered, turn on this collection of accounts and just flood the zone. Uh, and it's a very distinct, different strategy because oftentimes those accounts are called almost immediately. They're easy to find. The platforms find them, bot spotters and researchers find them. They come down very quickly. But what matters is that in that moment, in that moment when people are paying attention, that's when they're active. Uh, and so it's a, it's a very different, far less um, sophisticated kind of commitment to a, a long-term uh, influence strategy. And it's curious to see, we've actually been, been very interested in, in why they operate in this way, in part because the 50 Cent Party, which is a kind of commenter army focused inward, has been operating since 2004. 
Uh, so the, uh, the presence of fake personas participating in conversations uh, within the Chinese internet ecosystem uh, is actually not new at all. And so we've actually all been kind of we, you know, waiting to see how this would manifest in the outside of China, you know, the kind of Western social media ecosystem. Uh, and it's, it's been sort of surprisingly haphazard. This podcast is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. Everyone deserves an opportunity to succeed, no matter where you live, what you look like, or how modest your beginnings. But how do you create access to that opportunity so people have a chance to discover their promise and reach their full potential? The Walton Family Foundation believes in the power of opportunity to transform lives, build strong communities, and protect a natural world that sustains us all. For more than three decades, the foundation has been inspired by those who never see a challenge without striving to overcome it, those whose inventions are driven by necessity, the dreamers, the doers, those who are closest to the problem because they are closest to the solution. Opportunity thrives in healthy environments it withers in ailing ones. Opportunity should never be limited by geography. No one ever solved a big problem by thinking small. It's never easy to overcome difficult challenges. It takes time and steady resolve. One thing is true, everyone deserves an opportunity to succeed. Learn more at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. Laura, as far as the way that Renee was describing the, the Chinese sort of flooding the zone, does that have potential more scale and reach? In other words, I'm, I know this is a very blunt question, but like in, in perhaps too simplistic, but I'm trying to assess or trying to, trying to think about what potentially has greater threat, um, the Chinese sort of approach or not. And, and Laura, can you bring this back to, well, how does this affect the elections that if China's and their whole apparatus is spreading manipulated information about COVID. Yeah, so um, we pick up on a couple of different things. One is, I think Renee's point on the lack of sophistication that we continue to see, especially from the covert side of operations is important. Um, I think it also speaks to a broader, a broader question here. Um, one of the things that we saw um, happen in the, in the beginning of the um, anti-racism protests in the US was both Moscow and Beijing sort of seize on this narrative about not, it wasn't a disinformation narrative. It was just what we would call sort of a whataboutism kind of argument. Like, hey, look, police are beating protesters in the streets in Washington and in Portland and Minneapolis. And hey, you criticize us for when this happens in, in Hong Kong and Moscow. So like, you know, who's smiling now, right? So a lot of this like whataboutist kind of thing. By Beijing, we also saw, and then from Moscow, this attempt to argue like, look, you know, protesters in the street means democracies in chaos and all this stuff. And, you know, I frankly retort that while the reasons for protesters being in the streets and, and the fact of police lashing out at protesters and press um, was not a good thing, the act of the protests themselves is a sign of a democracy, messy as it may be, 
actually working, right? And that's something you can't see in these regimes. But one of the more interesting moments was when one of China's foreign ministry spokespeople was attempting to tweet in solidarity with the protesters. And um, she actually tweeted, um, I believe it was a, <coughs> a quote tweet, excuse me, um, but, but she tweeted all lives matter. And she did that in it, attempting to express solidarity with the protesters, not realizing that in fact, all lives matter is a rejection of the black lives matter mantra, right? And so there's a, there's a lack of sophistication, I think, about some of the broader cultural cues as well that we have seen Moscow actually be a little bit more adept at, certainly in a lot of the IRA activity in 2016, right? Found those fissures and where they could pull at those seams. And I think that's also an area where we see, you know, China definitely still lagging behind. To, to get a little bit more to your question about, you know, what's the bigger threat and, um, and sort of how does this affect the election? Let me take those in like two different parts. You know, the first is to me, I think it's really important that we take, um, uh, again, a step back. It's my favorite thing to do, taking a step back and understanding, sorry for the beeping in the background, I'm trying to turn off my notifications here. Um, the, you know, to understand, you know, from a, you know, I, I'm a sort of you know, national security person by background. I, I spent a lot of time in government working on China and US-China foreign policy and, and US-China relations. Um, so for me, it's trying to understand, like, what is China actually trying to achieve here? Um, what is Moscow trying to achieve? And, you know, all these things that we're talking about right now are their, their tactics in a broader strategic effort to both, you know, use information for influence, as Renee has said, but also both Beijing and Moscow are seeking to advance a different vision, an autocratic vision of the information space. Um, one where um, governments um, have, the, have a greater ability to monitor, control um, what their citizens do online. They do that through infrastructure that's designed to enable that kind of monitoring and, and control. Um, and through um, legal and governance regimes that promote a sovereign internet, um, a sovereign information space. You, you alluded to the, the platform TikTok earlier in your, in your perfect storm of issues, right? And the debates we're seeing now about what should happen with, with TikTok, this platform, um, I think is, is another big piece of, of this puzzle. And so I think for me, the threat is not just from the actual, the, the actual influence vectors of the information itself, but that broader information ecosystem that these regimes are trying to create, because I think that's fundamentally at odds with the functioning democracy which relies on, you know, um, deliberative debate with, you know, information and, and sort of truth and, and, and being sort of at the ground of it. And that will bring us back to the, the elections right here, right? Which I think is that, um, you know, the, the reason that I think that um, COVID disinformation is a concern in an election context is, is two things, right? One is there's a very specific nexus there between health disinformation and disinformation about voting and how those two things are gonna be interrelated, right? Um, but there's a broader sense here of the fact that when you are sowing doubt about a government's ability to respond um, to something like a pandemic, when you are sowing doubts about the information that the government is providing about the pandemic, right? When you know some of the domestic actors um, that Renee's um, studied as well, right? are promoting things like this, this pandemic 
um, uh, documentary, right? That, that it sought to really sow doubt about some of the core figures, right, in our public health ecosystem and whether or not they're in fact telling the truth. You're sowing doubt in citizens' faith in their democratic institutions. And, and I think that that both primes us to have less faith in the integrity of the election. It primes us um, potentially to be less um, inclined to participate in democratic processes. Um, and it, it primes us to just be less trusting of our, of our elected officials um, and credible sources of information. And so, I, you know, to me, um, a number of these different things are, are sort of gateway drugs, um, right, to the broader um, you know, disinformation um, ecosystems um, and, uh, you know, health disinformation, coronavirus disinformation right now is certainly playing a central role in, in a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, gateway drug is probably a very, it's a, a, it's a very frightening term as well as probably very apt for, for what we're seeing here. And Renee, I really um, don't, I would be remiss if we didn't go um, explore a little bit on the domestic side, what you've been seeing. Um, and what you're seeing on different platforms, can you tell us sort of what, what, the, what are the biggest threats that you're seeing and how you know, sort of strategies are being deployed? I think one of the challenges is um, there are some bright lines that platforms have with regard to takedowns by, by foreign state actors. And we kind of alluded to them in the form of inauthentic activity. Uh, the, the question of what to do about health misinformation spread by real people, particularly domestic actors in the U.S., where freedom of expression is, you know, kind of paramount concern, uh, means that those, those policies are less robust. The platforms treat everything sort of as an isolated case. You know, there are policies, but they're not necessarily well-executed policies at this point. Uh, and what that translates to is things that go viral that are not addressed in a timely fashion, uh, leading to oftentimes very ham-handed takedowns um, after the fact, after something's been viewed 8 million times, um, as in the case of the pandemic video, that then lead to second order effects in which there's a controversy about censorship and platform censorship, uh, making them then further reluctant to take things down earlier uh, as they are, you know, as for things that need to be taken down. Um, and that is, that's kind of created a more acidity information ecosystem domestically. So one of the things that we've seen, you know, I started working, I actually got my start in looking at misinformation and the spread of narratives, looking at the anti-vaccine movement in America in 2015. Um, as an activist myself, working on getting a bill passed in California to eliminate vaccine opt-outs, uh, which I was just interested in as a mom, and was really kind of blown away by my own ability, actually, to just set up a Facebook page, we call ourselves Vaccinate California, and to uh, micro-target <laughs> to get people calling their elected representatives to pass the bill that we wanted to see passed, right? And that's just activism. That is the nature of activism today, and that, that has evolved over the last five years. And so the interesting thing is the same uh, information pathways, the same virality tools, the same ability to uh, micro-target to achieve particular reach, to leverage the group's ecosystem, uh, to spread information in a very participatory way, regular ordinary people um, can be used for uh, kind of pro-public health or Black Lives Matter or any number of different uh, social movements that, uh, that most of us have been pleased to see come into the world. Um, but at the same time, they do offer the same affordances to people who want to spread health misinformation. And so the challenge for platforms has been how to think about um, what to take down 
There's a kind of three-part framework, remove, reduce, and form. Um, remove is what actually needs to be taken down. Reduce is where you see kind of a, a coordinated, uh, like a deprecated um, temporarily throttle or permanently throttle the virality of something that is found to be misinformation that has harm, that causes downstream harm. And then the last uh, is um, remove, reduce, inform, which is where you just kind of put up the interstitial uh, informing people about, you know, a fact check, kind of posting a link to a fact check. Uh, one of the challenges with pandemic, you know, with pandemic, the video, the health misinformation video, is what we found when we studied it at Stanford is that, um, you know, we could see indications that it was going to be happening beginning two months prior. So beginning in April 2016, we began to see evidence that anti-vaccine activists were trying to elevate this person, Judy Mikovits, who spread these, you know, these insane conspiracy theories about Anthony Fauci having people killed and so on and so forth. Um, <laughs> conspiracies about masks, about murder, you name it, it's all in there. Um, we could see early indications that, that this was a coordinated effort to turn this person into an influencer. And yet there was really no actionable moment for the platforms to respond to that. And so the question becomes, when this is just the information ecosystem, when anybody can use these tools and tactics, when is the appropriate intervention point? And unfortunately with Plandemic, you know, we had um, seen the initial post, looked at it, said this is, this is going to be viral. And then sure enough, the next morning, uh, you know, I had, I think, 95 emails in my box with alerts and mentions and things just, you know, this is, here it is, it happened. Um, one of the challenges has been after something's viewed 8 million times, what do you do with it? What we found was that it actually took about two days for the fact checks to start to come out. Um, the New York Times did some, um, Science Magazine did some, a couple of YouTubers, very prominent YouTubers did them. But the challenge is when there's that two day lag between when the misinformation goes viral and then when the fact check comes out, that basically uh, you know, seeds the space for the misinformation for such a sufficiently long period of time um, that then the fact check doesn't get the same attention because people have kind of moved on to the next thing. So one thing that we've been trying to do at SIO is develop a better understanding of the uh, velocity and the volume at which this occurs, the specific pathways that things kind of jump through uh, in an attempt to develop a better understanding of how to detect signal of emerging virality or emerging velocity earlier. Uh, and then to think more about what's a more appropriate intervention. We don't want to see platforms taking things down constantly. That's not the kind of information environment that we want to operate in. But if you're going to use inform and put out a fact check, or if you're going to use reduce and throttle it, the time to use those two tools is not after eight or 20 million people have seen something. And so the question is, how do we improve our understanding of, uh, you know, this is how information flows today. So what are the norms and the policies and potentially the regulations that we want to see around those dynamics? And can Laura and Renee, can the platform see as early as you're describing? I mean, you guys have, you're, you definitely have a lens into it. Um, are they sufficiently looking ahead, like sort of around the corners? There's not even really a sharp corner to look around, right? When, when it comes to some of these trends. I think the question becomes um, focus. You know, where is your focus? Where's your attention? There are certainly people who are looking at it. Um, one of the things that's challenging oftentimes, though, is these, these things happen across all platforms simultaneously, or they hop yeah. from one to the next, 
or they're coordinated to happen. It, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not accidental. Uh, and so there's that question of um, monitoring the internet as system. I feel like Laura could probably respond to this in the context of Hamilton or some of the work that they do on that as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think Renee is exactly right. That, um, it, a lot of it is a question of focus. A lot of it is a question of like, where are you watching the, the signals come from, right? Renee talks about all the different signals that you can use in this context. And I think there's a lot of different directions um, that these signals come from. Um, and so, you know, one of the, the challenges, I think, is figuring out how do you have multiple different angles on, on one problem, right? Um, and I'll, I'll give one specific example where I think, you know, we, there was a blind spot in the past where we've seen some attempts to, to, to deal with this. And then I can talk about a broader, you know, Renee's point on sort of a systems approach. I mean, you know, we've been talking a lot about sort of the, the um, you know, foreign actor disinformation targeting democracies. But one of the, um, I think one of the greatest sort of travesties that's um, taken place in part by social media um, was the use of Facebook by, um, by the Myanmar military apparatus um, to prosecute a genocide of the Rohingya. Um, and a lot of that took place in part because, or it was not detected, I should say, at least in part because, um, uh, you know, Facebook didn't even have people on the staff who had the language capabilities to understand, let alone the cultural um, signals that would have um, potentially helped signal early on that um, this kind of language around such a charged issue had potential to have disastrous consequences, right? And so I think sometimes there's a sense that you have to have like a lot of deep under the hood looking at like all the different, you know, um, activity happening at a technical level. And there's a huge part of that, don't get me wrong, and, and Renee's team and others are fantastic at doing that kind of work. But there's also just the sort of broader, you know, um, monitoring that of, the, of the ecosystem that needs to be happening um, with an understanding of like what's happening in said place at that time, right? What's happening in this country um, that we need to be aware of. And, and that's where I actually think that, that a real true systematic approach um, involves a significant amount of coordination and information sharing on um, sort of threat vectors and, and different signals between government actors, the platforms, mm -hmm. and society um, actors or, or outside researchers. Um, because each of those different constituencies um, or entities has visibility into a certain kind of, of um, analysis, right? Or a certain kind of, of indicators. Um, and, and each of them on their own can see pieces of this. It's the combination of that that I think is where you can actually have a much more sort of powerful approach. And certainly some of the work that Renee does with, you know, and SIO does with the platforms does that. Um, you know, the, the work that my team does, the Hamilton dashboard that we operate really looks primarily at the overt state actor piece and how those actors engage with what we think of as the gray space. Um, which is, you know, not necessarily always covert, but these sort of quasi attributed um, actors in, in that space. And again, it's, it's one piece that feeds into this broader sense of what's happening in the information ecosystem. But I totally agree with Renee's description from earlier on of needing to see this 
sort of spectrum um, of you know social media being just one piece of this broader information ecosystem. And that sort of systemic approach is, I think, where we still need to make a lot more progress um, in terms of the you know not just the platform stepping up what they're doing, but actually having the cross-sector um, cooperation that we really need um, at scale. We do have some questions. I'm going to go ahead and launch right into it. Um, I, I do want you to, at some point though, Laura, because you said something very chilling about how after the election, it's the day after that you're, th that you're thinking about too. And I mean, I think a lot of us haven't even wrapped our heads around that, but it could be a long, very contested process going forward and the information sort of manipulation around that. But let's take a question from Sean Roberts. So uh, voting is a state and locality issue mostly. And, and obviously the federal government provides some, some uh, uh, standards recommendations, but it's, it's really run by the states and, and localities take that information and try to run with it. But it, the sophistication typically when you get down to local level is uh, um, when you're talking digital or digital tools is, is usually uh, not the, the primary uh, thing that they're responsible for, the thing that they're promoting. Usually they don't have the money and they usually don't have the people. So um, coming back to elections, um, what, do you, what do your speakers think about elections officials uh, building support networks in state um, across different localities um, to uh, start building some uh, digital tools to communicate, like a mobile app, which seems to be pretty popular, I've heard, um, to communicate with the, the voters in their jurisdictions about, um, you know, it could be as simple as just information, but it also could be um, as sophisticated as supplying um, sample ballots, like they've tried doing in, in some counties um, with some success. Um, but also it could be uh, uh, providing um, congestion information for polling centers where somebody might want to, uh, you know, visit in person rather than uh, voting remotely um, through the mail. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Sean. Um, Laura, yeah, what is working now? Um, what are you seeing that's actually working on in that space in terms of mobile apps? Um, do you want to answer that, Laura? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to. Um, I will, I will admit if you saw me like twitch a little bit when you said mobile app, I have a lot of um, still like Iowa caucus um, yeah. app triggering happening over here. Um, I'll, I'll come back to that in one second. But Sean, I, I think your question gets at a really important point here, um, which it, I mean, so one of them is that the officials who are on the front lines of this often have sort of the least amount of resources and, and capacity and, and knowledge about these kinds of issues, right? Um, yet we, we sort of need them to be on the front lines. But the other piece that was embedded in what you just asked, which I love, um, is this idea of, of affirmatively building in pathways for quality information and like building resilience in advance. And this is one of the things that my team's been doing a lot of work with state and local elected official, election officials on, um, which is that the moment to start getting out quality information about the election and how it's going and, and where to go for information is not the week before the election. Just to Renee's point about how the ground was being laid for the pandemic video for the past almost four years, election officials need to be laying the groundwork like several years ago, but really if they haven't started it, doing it now, to be using their information channels 
their, you know, hopefully verified Twitter accounts and Facebook accounts, their websites that hopefully have a .gov, um, you know, address so it can be protected um, by the U.S. government to the fullest extent possible, um, right? That, that they're using these, these channels of information now, both because if you don't use them until a week before the election, nobody is going to follow you or know that they're there. But two, you need to be getting that information out now to build resilience in people's minds about expectations. What's going to happen with the election, with all these changes that are happening, right? I think over-communication is essential in this area and doing that through um, quality verified channels. Now, to that end, while I'm all about finding sophisticated ways of getting information out to people where they're going to find it, I'm very skittish about things like mobile apps for a couple of reasons. One is it's not something that people, you know, something some, everybody's going to have to go out and download it and digest it themselves and learn how to use it and whatever. And that's not naturally fitting into their sort of information absorptive um, habits. One. Two, um, security challenges um, are a big question when it comes to mobile apps. And so we'll just sort of put that to the side. But the third, and frankly, this is what was the problem with the Iowa app, right? It wasn't actually that there was a security challenge. It's just that it had never been tested in the way it needed to be to be run at scale, to, be, to make sure people knew what they were doing. Um, and so you had the appearance that something had gone seriously, seriously wrong when in fact it was basically a combination of just like bad testing and user error and nothing malicious. Um, but I, I would very much hesitate to start injecting new pathways for information, certainly at this point in the cycle. But I would use the tools that are available and use them now and use them often to get out sort of advanced information. Um, let's take another question from Amelia Probosco. You had mentioned earlier about the needing to bring together the platforms and the government, and I was kind of curious as to your assessment of how that's going right now, what's working well in terms of the, the relationship between those two, and where could you see it going in the future? Great question. Renee, would you like to take that? There's a few different ways in which uh, engagement happens, right? And I'm, I don't work at a platform, so I'm not going to speak to their, their policy teams or their integrity teams and their direct interfacing with government. Um, but there's things like the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism, which is a, you know, kind of consortium of a variety of governments, civil society organizations, and tech platforms uh, that do work with a particular focus on terrorism. That was kind of one of the first bodies to come about uh, because of the pressing nature of that particular issue, particularly after Christchurch. Uh, so there is a very robust framework there. With the election monitoring stuff, um, you know, I can't, I can't speak to the relationship they have internally because uh, I'm, I'm just, I don't have visibility into it. But what we have as a public-private partnership forum more broadly are uh, channels of communication by which, you know, either threat information or assessments of potential foreign interference or, uh, you know, kind of after-action reports on particular takedowns or yeah, that includes domestic takedowns as well uh, are you know, there's a effort to incorporate in signals that various entities have while remaining mindful of things like preserving user privacy and, uh, and sort of, um, you know, kind of core principles of uh, engagement on that front. So there is, I think, a far more productive working relationship now in 2020 than there was 
in the early days of dealing with ISIS in 2015, where there was very much kind of, uh, you know, uh, platforms didn't want to be seen. This was right after Snowden, of course, you know, platforms didn't want to be seen as doing the bidding of the U.S. government, even when it came to, you know, putting out information about or taking down terrorist accounts. And so there was not a very good working relationship back in 2015, but that has improved significantly now. Um, I think one of the challenges that we have, we've, we've recently set up an election integrity partnership at Stanford with a number of other research organizations that are looking at election 2020 misinformation, ranging from the technical to the qualitative, you know, approaches of, of understanding what's going on. And there are these kind of signal sharing frameworks in place to ensure that when we see something bubbling up, there is a way to route that information as appropriate. And that includes, you know, per the prior question, uh, state governments as well. There are a number of, um, you know, we recognize that state secretaries of state and others don't necessarily have the technical capabilities within their teams to do assessments. And so when they see things like, hey, in my local Facebook group, this voter suppression narrative is, is happening, where is it coming from? But we don't want to see as the immediate default to it's the Russians, you know? <laughs> and so we do have kind of like these sort of triage processes that we're working towards to ensure that uh, that research organizations, academics, civil society, some, you know, even kind of technical providers with the capability to assess um, those emerging narratives uh, have the ability to look and help and, and investigate and that all of that signal is shared uh, among the stakeholders who can then communicate effectively with their constituents or elevate as necessary. We're pretty much at the end of our time here. I really want to thank Renee and Laura. We covered a lot of ground and um, a lot more to consider ahead of the election and in general. Thank you, Laura and Renee. Laura Rosenberger is a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Renee Duresta investigates the spread of malign narratives across social networks. She's advised Congress, the State Department, and other organizations on the topic. Cecilia Kang oversees technology and regulatory policy for the New York Times. Their conversation was held in August at the Aspen Security Forum, which is presented by the Aspen Security Group. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin. It was programmed by the Aspen Security Forum team. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. This podcast is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. The Walton Family Foundation is, at its core, a family-led foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities. The foundation partners with others to make a difference in K-12 education, the environment, and its home region of northwest Arkansas and the Arkansas-Mississippi Delta. Learn more at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.